0: This week on the show, we cover OpenBSD 6.3 and DragonflyBSD 5.2, which have new releases. Uh, We have a bug fix for disappearing files in OpenZFS on Linux and only Linux, mind you. Uh, We cover understanding the FreeBSD CPU schedule a little bit, talk about NetBSD on RPi 3, Thoughts on being a committer for 20 years, wow, and five reasons to use FreeBSD in 2018 on this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 243, understanding the scheduler, recorded for the 25th of april 2018. hi i'm your host benedict reuschling and i'm alan ju glad to have you back this week uh alan is still on conferences but we couldn't resist to pre-record these episodes so um we go through our regular headlines this week starting with openbsd 6.3 being released on time of course
1: yes um, as, punctual as ever It actually seems to have leaked out a couple days early um, But we have the latest released, 6.3 of OpenBSD. Uh, Doesn't have a song yet, so that's disappointing. But uh, everything else looks pretty interesting. Uh, Glossing over some of the interesting uh, bits. Uh, Lots of improved hardware support, including SMP support for ARM64. Uh, Lots of Broadcom and XPower and all-winner drivers for all the little different devices, Uh, they now have an EFI driver for the runtime service, Uh, then a bunch of improvements to VMM and VMD, that's the uh, hypervisor in OpenBSD, Mm -hmm. which we saw at uh, VHiveCon, a couple of Mm -hmm. new things here, Uh, including uh, CD-ROM and DVD-ISO support, Uh, and a bunch of those. Uh, lots of wireless improvements including the IWM and IWN drivers uh, will now automatically roam between access points if they have the same ESS ID.
0: Oh yeah, excellent. That's certainly helpful.
1: Yeah. Uh, bunch of generic network stack improvements including the network stack no longer runs with the kernel lock when IPsec is enabled. Uh, the processing of incoming packets is now done without that kernel lock and socket splicing tasks can run without the kernel lock.
0: Excellent, uh, getting less and less locks on OpenBSD so is always good for performance. Yep, they also uh, removed
1: a bunch of IPv6 code since the uh, auto-configuration stuff now runs in userland instead of in the kernel. And they have the new SIN cookies feature for PF and support for uh, GRE
0: over IPv6, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, does, does OpenBSD have that exclusively? Do you know that? Is that? Um,
1: I don't know. Hmm. Uh, improvements okay. to the installer, including allowing you to use CIDR notation when setting the IP address and repair the selection of mirrors and allowing dashes
0: and usernames. Ah, in case you need that, like user-1, user-2 or something.
1: Yep. Uh, a bunch of routing daemons and other user-land network improvements. The new the BGP control has a new SSV option. The uh, Slackd, which is the stateless auto configuration for V6, uh, OSPFD can now set the metric uh, for a route depending on the status of the interface. If config has a static ARP option, uh, and IPsec control uh, can now collapse flow outputs having the same source and destination.
0: Nice. And, of course, security improvements because OpenBSD, not uh, not too far away from that. Yeah, uh, you know, they got the
1: trap sleds, more read-only data, um, the exec promise feature for Pledge, um, the map stack feature, uh, some pieces of Carl, uh, random gap at the top of thread stacks uh, to make ROP a little bit harder, uh, the mitigations for m- Meltdown. Uh, on Intel and D64 CPUs. Um, ARM64 uh, now uses the kernel page table isolation uh, to mitigate Spectre V3, which is Meltdown. Uh, and v 7 and ARM64 now flush the branch target buffer on processors that do speculative execution uh, to mitigate Spectre variant 2. Mm, okay. um, a bunch of improvements so. to their DHCP client and then assorted other improvements, including code reorganization and other improvements to malloc uh, for memory allocation, and uh, improvements to fdisk, uh, soft raid, disk label, TCP dump. Uh, the TCP dump one is interesting because you can now dump uh, USB transfers into USB PCAP. Uh, and they changed the default prompts for CSH, KSH, and SH to now include the host name of the machine.
0: Hmm. So, small things like that uh, is like, oh, I didn't know I missed that feature, and, but now it's yeah. there, it's even cooler.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, they added uh, an SPF walk option to uh, OpenSMTPD, uh, updated OpenSSH to version 7.7. Lots of changes there, but that would be yeah. a separate just a bit of new. <laughs> a long list. Uh, yeah. Labra <laughs> SSL oh. 2.7.2. And then various ports and packages. Uh, They have about 8,000 pre built ports for ARM64 and about 10,000 for AMD64. Wow,
0: that's a lot. Yeah, that's definitely a good list uh, of ports and packages. And uh, of course, you find all the Arctic well, not articles, architectures Uh, OpenBSD runs on and how to upgrade and uh, how to get the ports tree and things like that at the bottom of the release docs. Okay, Um, but this is not the only release we're covering today. We also have Dragonfly BSD 5.2 being released as the next item. Uh, This one is over at dragonflybsd.org, of course. And it reads that they have some uh, big ticket items. Uh, of course, as always, as everyone or as every open source operating system project has to work with, Meltdown Inspector Mitigation Support is here also in Dragonfly BSD. Specifically, that Meltdown Isolation Inspector Mitigation Support was added. Uh, meltdown mitigation is automatically enabled for all Intel CPUs. Spectre mitigations must be enabled manually via SuctL if desired. And using suctl's macdab.spectre underscore mitigation and MACDAP underscore meltdown mitigation needs to be set. And that will activate that specific mitigation for Spectre. So, Hammer 2 has also gotten some uh, updates. Uh, H2, well, which is, of course, Hammer 2, uh, that has received a large number of bug fixes and performance improvements, the show notes tell us. Uh, we can uh, now recommend H2 as the default root file system in non-clustered mode. But cluster support is not yet available. So, that's still coming. And they have IPFW updates. Uh, they implement state-based redirect, like uh, without using lib alias. Uh, IPFW now also supports all possible ICMP types and they fixed some ICMP underscore max type assumptions now 40 as of this release. They also have uh, improved graphics support. The DRM slash I915 kernel driver has been updated to support Intel Coffee Lake GPUs, so that's nice. And they added a 24-bit pixel format support to the EFI frame buffer code as well as significantly improved the FBIO support for the SCFB XOR driver. And this allows EFI frame buffers to be used by X in situations where we do not otherwise support JIT GPU. Wow, that's certainly a good improvement from the graphics area. And they partly implemented the FBIO underscore blank IOCTL for display power saving, also good. And uh, SysCons waits for DRM mode setting at appropriate places avoiding uh, race conditions or races. So if you want to learn all the changes since Dragonfly BSD 5.0 up to this version 5.2, you can read a very long list by just scrolling down. It's a long list of changes because that's covered multiple releases. Uh, But for people who want to get the Dragonfly BSD 5.2, we have people in the chat room already doing the update. It's been working fine for them. And uh, yeah, if you're in Dragonfly, try it out and... um, Report back to us, actually. We don't get many news from Dragonfly BSD these days. So um, send it to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv to cover it in the next episode.
1: This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com and get started today. It takes less than 55 seconds to spin up a free BSD droplet in the cloud, and you'll get a nice quick VM for $5. It's a gigabyte of RAM, a terabyte of transfer, and 25 gigs of storage. Uh, Your choice of FreeBSD on UFS or ZFS.
0: Yeah. Because once you get started with your own little uh, droplet in the cloud, you're like, huh, that's nice. Actually, I could run more services on that or I could try more applications. I've always wanted to try them being available on the internet. Of course, making them secure is always important. That's why uh, DigitalOcean also provides you with a easy-to-use firewall for your little droplets so you can configure what kind of ports are being accessible or uh, what kind of stuff doesn't uh, pass the firewall and things like that. So that also helps you... uh, run your droplets securely.
1: Yeah, um, with the so basically to get started, you go to the website uh, you decide, I need to deploy this pre-built app or this operating system, so you can choose FreeBSD or you could choose something else. Uh, Then you choose the size and type of your droplet. Uh, All of them are SSD backed but you can choose more RAM or more CPUs or more of both. You can have Something as small as $5 a month or as big as you could possibly need. Uh, and then you just pick where in the world you want to put it. Choosing from eight different locations including uh, San Francisco, Toronto, New York, London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt,
0: Bangalore and Singapore. Excellent. Yeah, those are the locations. And uh, you could also use the team feature to add friends to your droplet so you can all manage those without giving them everything. So you can say, that person should be allowed to manage the droplet but shouldn't be allowed to look into my uh, billing.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to make sure that somebody else has access to your droplets in case you're away or something, especially if you know, it's for a team thing or a group or something.
0: Yeah, you can also make backups, of course, as well as snapshots. So these are two different things and uh, both help you in case there's a disaster or you need to roll back to an earlier state. You can get that as well with DigitalOcean.
1: You know, I remember back in the day where we would have a team-like thing like this, but it would be all the people putting their money together in order to get one server.
0: Well, one big server, yeah. yeah to, well, no, very get one
1: machine that didn't even have a gig of RAM. <laughs> And yeah, a terabyte of internet transfer was just unheard of, uh, and now you can get all that for five dollars. Yeah, uh, connect, or you connect, could connect, decide you don't need it for the whole month, uh, and do their hourly pricing, and then you know it's fractions of a penny.
0: Yeah, it's it's it just opens you to so many new possibilities. It's like, uh, oh. Oh, I could do that? Oh, I can do this with multiple machines. Wow, cool. Especially when you are using our coupon code, now, which gives you a $10 credit, uh, and that can uh, start your little experimentation phase uh, with $10. That's already something, which uh, in DigitalOcean's uh, pricing, you can get a couple of good machines or a single one yep. with a bit more uh, yes, CPU. Uh,
1: well, that's the nice thing with the hourly pricing is you can decide, I actually need this big one over here. With, uh, you know, eight CPUs and 32 gigs of RAM. But I only need it for today. And Just so today. This once. You pay 23.8 cents an hour for however many hours you need. And then you delete it.
0: Yeah, it's and not
1: used anymore. It's like, okay, I did four hours. I spent less than a dollar.
0: The end. Yeah. Who would buy hardware for just this case? It's just nonsense. So yeah, that's what the cloud is for. Yeah. Yeah. I also remember back
1: in the day, if you (laughs) wanted a server, it took a couple of days to get it set up, not 45 seconds.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This is uh, changing a lot of things. So try it out on DigitalOcean and uh, definitely use our coupon code. Uh, next up is a an actual a critical thing so we should mention this uh, be, this is a Linux thing but we thought we should mention this on the show because it's uh, involving ZFS uh, the issue is ZFS on Linux uh, uh, has a bug which causes files to disappear and we have a GitHub issue here which uh Alan will that. go through so, more detail say the the
1: bugs already fixed and okay. ah first disclaimer we're recording this on April 11th by the time this comes out, I'm sure they'll have a better analysis of what actually went wrong. Yeah. Um, but for the time being, I can only tell you what knowledge I have when I wrote this last night, uh, not what's going to happen two weeks from now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, <laughs> We're not so we'll that. start at the beginning. Uh, there is a bug in ZFS on Linux version 0.7.7 7. uh, that's only been out for a couple of days uh, at this point. They've already released 0.7.8 with the fix, so uh, yeah, you, that's you just update early. and you'll be safe anyway. Uh, but I thought it might be interesting to explain some of the details of what happened here, um, and and cover that.
0: Yeah, and so don't panic. The bug only impacts Linux. The change that caused the problems was not upstreamed yet, so it does not impact ZFS on Elomos, not FreeBSD, not OS 10 not zfs on windows which is still in beta but still so So, linux only
1: yeah linux only and in general only on old versions of linux and we'll get into why that is in a minute here Uh, okay so the bug can cause files being copied uh into a directory to not be properly linked to the directory uh so that when you then later do ls on the directory or something they're not there um yeah, that's what Sir. causes people yeah. to panic.
0: I put the files Sir. in there, definitely.
1: Uh, and it's like more confusing because the files are on the disk and are not going to be overwritten, but you can't see them or even delete them. Uh, they're going to work on a tool for that after. But anyway, uh, so the ZFS on ZFS Linux developers are working on a tool to allow you to recover any files that were lost in this way. Uh, I don't expect that this will affect very many people because it was only for a couple of days, only on old versions of Linux, and only if you're yeah. doing a specific type of workload, but uh, they're going to make a tool anyway. Uh, okay. Basically, the, the files exist, the data is safe, it's just not properly linked into the directory due to the bug. Okay. So, so uh, the, the bug, bug was introduced in a commit made in February uh, into the head branch of ZFS on Linux that was released a couple of days ago. Uh, and it, what it was doing was attempting to improve performance of datasets where you created them with the case insensitivity option. So, one of the features of ZFS is that you can create a dataset where file names are not case sensitive. So, you know, Benedict and Benedict cell with a capital B are the same
0: file. As well as Alan uh, and yes. Alan with a capital A. <laughs> yes, but not Alan with an E. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> uh, but this is partly,
1: you know, for better compatibility with Windows and Mac and so on and other case-insensitive file systems, uh, you know. But because inherently ZFS was originally case-sensitive, um, it could mean that creating a bunch of files with that have basically the same name but the case is different or whatever uh, can cause collisions in the hash that's used to... Uh, link the files into the directory. Uh, and so to try and improve performance, uh, they introduce a limit to cap how many times we would try to grow the directory zap. And I'll explain what a zap is in a second. So if trying to grow the zap failed twice, uh, it would give up and return you no know, space, uh, just like that the file system out of space. Although the file system wasn't actually out of space, but it means it couldn't manage to grow the zap. Um, So, to explain uh, what the ZAP is, uh, the ZAP is basically a key value pair data structure, the ZFS attribute processor, um, that contains all the metadata for the directory, including like ACLs and permissions and uh, all the metadata, but also the list of all the files that are in that directory, right? It's kind of important to know. (laughs) Yeah. In ZFS, each file in a data set has an object ID, which is also reused as the inode number. Uh, and then so there's this table that says, these are all the object IDs that are in this directory. Uh, so there are actually three different versions of the zap: There's a micro zap, the regular zap, and then a fat zap. Ooh. Um, cool so, names, you know, by if, the way. If the <laughs> uh, directory only has a couple of files in it, then it'll have a micro zap, regular one will have a regular zap and one with a a very large number of files will have a fat zap okay Uh, makes sense and so it's got this hash table which has basically a bunch of buckets and you do uh, a very light hash on the file names uh, when they come in and that decides which bucket they go into and when a bucket uh gets full you can end up with these extra leaves where you have to make the bucket bigger to hold all these files um Right. So in the commit they uh, So quoting from the analysis of the bug, the commit CC63068 caused eno space error when copying a large amount of files between two directories. The reason is that the patch limits zap leaf expansion to 2 retries and then returns eno space if it fails. However, finding the root cause of this issue Uh, was somewhat hampered by the fact that many people were not able to reproduce the issue on their machine. Uh, It turns out this was caused by an entirely unrelated change to GNU core utils and the copy utility. Hey! Uh, On later versions of GNU core utils, the files are returned in a sorted order uh, instead of in... So originally, in the older versions, they're copied... In the order of the return from uh reading the directory. But on the newer versions, they're returned sorted. Uh it was a fast sort. Uh so the problem with this is when you're copying from one directory to another directory, if you're on an old version, like the first person to report this bug was on Scientific Linux, which is running a 2.6.32 kernel, which is very old in Linux kernel ages. Um and has this old version of GNU Coreutils. So when they copied all the files from this directory to this directory, it was copying them in the order they were in the hash table instead of in alphabetical order. Uh, so okay. when you're copying in the hash table, you're going to all, all the work will be on the first bucket and then the second bucket and the third bucket. And you could end up needing to expand the leaf multiple times. Uh, whereas if you happen to be running a newer distro of Linux that had the newer copy command, it would copy the files in sorted order, and so they would go, you know, back and forth between all these buckets yeah. randomly, and you wouldn't have to grow the same leaf multiple times in a row, and you wouldn't hit uh-huh. the limit and cause the bug.
0: That makes sense as an analysis. Yeah,
1: so the intent of limiting retries is to prevent pointlessly growing the table to its maximum size when adding uh, a block full of entries with the same name in different cases in mixed mode. However, it turns out that you can't use any limit on the number of retries because when we copy files from one directory in the order the returned by the reader syscall, uh, we are copying in the hash order one leaf block at a time which means that if the leaf block of the source directory had been expanded six times as those files were written originally, when you copy it, it's going to have to expand the destination six times in a row, which is more than two. Uh, So that means that the leaf block in the source directory has expanded six times and you copy it, and then you'll need to expand the leaf block in the destination directory six times. And when that doesn't work, you have this problem and you'll get in space and because of the way it rolled it back, uh, it might also cause some files not to be linked. So some files won't be copied, and some files might be copied, but not actually show up in the directory listing.
0: Hmm, Because they're in the wrong pocket.
1: there, because those ones will return success that they had copied when they hadn't.
0: That's tricky, yeah, Yeah, but it's it's been worked on, as we said. Yes, uh, uh, they've uh, already released 0.7.8,
1: with the offending change rolled back and there's actually another patch to reintroduce most of the original change but without the limit which caused the problem Uh, Mm -hmm. and there's also been talk about uh, you know making the zfs on linux people get more code review done before they commit things and release
0: them like this would that Uh, also be covered by the um, the zfs stress test the test suite um yes
1: this test can be added it's just it wasn't yeah. obvious. Um, it's also not obvious that this same change might have ever been discovered on an OS other than Linux uh, because the the hash table used for the zap actually does have a seed, uh, uh, a salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from what I can tell, on Lumos and BSD, this salt is nice and random. On Linux, it's made by Xoring two pointers, oh. so the top bits are always zero. <laughs> Oops. Um, and so the salt isn't very strong.
0: Not very salty. Um, yeah. Not very yeah. Uh, random.
1: So copying not from one directory enough. to another directory on BSD, the files should end up in a very different order. Uh, yeah. And so you wouldn't have you wouldn't have ran into this problem. Uh, although no, it's it's good that, we... Um, well, it's not good that yeah. we did, but. Um, we know to make sure not to, to cap the growing of the zap, but um, it's entirely possible. The same change wouldn't have ever caused a problem on the Lumos or FreeBSD. Uh, yeah. Or the pro- it, it still could have caused a problem, but the probability of it happening would have been very, very low because you'd have to have a source and destination directory with a salt that was similar or the same. Mm. Uh and the chances of that happening, with them being random, are pretty low. Yeah. Or even if they were, you—the chances of you then copying a very large number of files from that director from A to B, or both have similar hashes—is just, you know, very low. Uh, but mm. because of other architectural differences on Linux, it impacted there. So we have uh, if you were using. ZFS on Linux version 0.7.7 7 and did see errors uh, or are concerned, I have some feedback here from Ryan Yao, uh, ZFS on Linux developer who we've interviewed on the show before. This is the regression makes it so that creating a new file could fail with e no space uh, after which files created in that directory could become orphaned where they were copied, they exist, and then they didn't end up getting linked into the directory. Mm. Uh, existing files seem okay uh, but they've yet to confirm that but basically if you're modifying a file that already existed there's not any chance of that file going missing uh, because it was already in the hash bucket uh, Mm. whereas it's only adding new files that could have caused a problem Uh, it is also incredibly difficult to reproduce on systems running modern core utils version 8.23 or later I think current is like 8.28 um so far reports have only come from people using core utils 8.22 or older which is mostly you know CentOS 6 or Scientific Linux 6 uh, mm. anything with an old 2.x kernel instead of a 3 or 4 kernel Ooh. that's really old um so far, reports have only come from people using the version. Uh, the directory size actually gets incremented for each orphan file, which makes it uh, wrong after the orphan files uh, happen. Uh, so we will likely have some way to recover any orphan files, something like the the lost and found directory. Uh, um, so you'll get the, a randomly named file, probably the object ID, um, and the content, and you'll have to basically reassign the the name of the file because that's missing mm. uh, or figure out what directory it was for anyway but you probably know because you probably only had one of these directories where you were copying a hundred thousand files or whatever yeah uh, so they'll make a tool that allow you to recover the files that aren't linked into the file system and fix the size of the directories um, if you have any snapshots on a damaged data set you'll have to destroy them but the tool will give you a list of those mm. uh, the damage uh, can be removed from the system by just uh, rolling back to a snapshot from before the problem uh, or creating a new data set on a version prior to this or a version after this uh, and copying all the files over and then getting rid of the old one. Uh, this will store things uh, to a pristine condition. It should also be possible to check for pools that are affected, so there'll be a way to tell if this problem actually impacted you at all uh, if you're not sure.
0: Yeah, like a scanning tool or just an analysis to tell you, hey, you're affected or not. Yeah. Uh, well, some like, people. Hey, uh, with the, it'll
1: basically scan the pool and be like, hey, there's a file here that's not linked to any directory.
0: Yeah, because with the number of files they were using to trigger that or trigger that bug, uh, is likely that people don't actually look at each individual files until it's too late. Yeah. Or uh, don't know about it until years later.
1: I think eventually they got the test case down to only needing about two thousand files in a directory. Uh, but the the thread here uh, has 111 comments and has only been open for five days at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, it's kind of a
0: critical thing. Yeah. The, so, the rate
1: of comments slowed down once the problem was fixed.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, people were <laughs> happy that they at least got a, an idea where the problem is. Yeah. So yeah, definitely good to know. And for the Linux people, they need some uh, fixing and updating and patching. And yeah, but yeah, um, is, they
1: once they identified the bug before they even knew what the problem was, they managed to get the the package the zero point seven point seven pulled from uh, most of the distros like Fedora and CentOS and Gen2, I think and Arch or something like that, yep. um, so that people wouldn't install it once they knew there was a problem, and then quickly got uh, the fixed version out, basically within three days of the bug being opened, so that uh, people could go back to having a safe system.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, this problem would not have happened if they viewed that other ButterFS, but yeah, they have other problems there. So <laughs> for the people who are using ZFS on Linux, then there's, there's help available. So time for the news roundup this week. We have Des thoughts on being a FreeBSD committer for 20 years. Wow, that's a lot of years, a lot mm-hmm. of time spent for an open source project. And we're quite uh, grateful for those contributions. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, here's so, a blog
1: post. Uh, Des on his blog, uh, des.no, uh, writes Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of my FreeBSD commit bit. And tomorrow will be the 20th anniversary of my first commit. I figured I'd split the difference and write a blog post about it today. My level of engagement with the FreeBSD project has varied greatly over the 20 years that I've been a committer. There's been times where I've worked on it full time and times where I didn't touch it for months at a time. Uh, The last few years, with health issues and life events, have consumed my time and sapped my energy, but my contributions have come in bursts. Uh, Commit statistics don't tell the whole story, though. Even when I'm not working on FreeBSD directly, I've been working on side projects, which, like OpenPAM, may one day find their way into FreeBSD. Um, mm. My contributions have also not been limited to code. I was the project's first bugmeister, the person responsible for the bug tracker, uh, and then later served on the security team for a long time and have been both the security officer and the deputy security officer. And he's also ran the last four core team election and uh, is the returned officer for us this year as well. In return, the project has taught me much about programming and software engineering. It's taught me about code hygiene and the importance of clarity over cleverness. It taught me the ins and outs of revision control and taught me the importance of good documentation and how to write it. And it taught me good release engineering practices. (coughs) You know, uh, it's actually been very interesting to see uh, going through various man pages in FreeBSD, how many of them were written by Des? And so, mm. very much uh, appreciate place. his contributions there.
0: Yeah, if only were it were for the man pages, but he did much more stuff all over the place. Mm-hmm. But
1: a, I just mean, oh. a lot of things written by other people, and you just see, and this man page was written by Dave Erling for us. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, continuing, he says, uh, last but not least, Uh, It has provided me with the opportunity to work with some of the best people in the field. I have the privilege today of counting several of them among my friends. For better or worse, the FreeBSD project has shaped my career and my life. It's set me on the path to information security in general and uh, IAA in particular and opened many doors for me. It would not be where I am today uh, without it. I won't pretend to be able to tell the future. But I don't know how long I'll remain active in the FreeBSD project and the community. It could be another 20 years, or it could just be five or 10. Uh, All I know is that FreeBSD and I still have a lot to teach each other, and I don't intend to call it quits anytime soon. Sorry. Yeah. uh, It's hard to believe it's been 20 years for some people already. 20
0: years is a lot. I mean, imagining me 20 years with the project. Ooh, wow, that's certainly a track record to have. I'm
1: getting close to having used FreeBSD for 20 years. Um, Mm. I guess the difference is, you know, a lot of people became developers pretty soon after becoming a user, where, you know, I took a long time. I think it was. Sure. Yeah.
0: I mean, 10 years
1: of being a user before I went to my first conference, uh, which I would say is my deepest regret about. Almost anything in my life, really. <laughs> All those not, not having come to BSD cam when I first heard about it in like 2006.
0: Ah, well, yeah, it's uh, it's still good. I mean, mm-hmm. you you go to the future ones, That's that's certainly yeah. going to happen each year. So, uh, and who knows what you're going to contribute? I I guess Des didn't know what he was going to work on five, ten, fifteen years. Yes, I'm from I'm sure restart. when
1: Des started, he didn't think he would ever end up being the security officer uh, (laughs) or many of the other things he's done.
0: Yeah, I mean what I find is that many people start in one area and then do something in a different area and then you know, sometimes they stay with those two areas or however they are, but some people are also, oh, I add this area to my repertoire or I'm now focusing more on let's say networking, coming from storage or the other way around, so That's certainly nice to broaden your horizon within the project this way.
1: Yeah, and as you said, if you go back to our original interview with Des a couple of years ago, you remember he got started with FreeBSD because he liked making demos—the demo old uh, like assembly, (laughs) make the smallest executable you can that does all these fancy graphics and so Mm, on—and wanted a better OS than DOS to build them on top of. And a friend gave him a FreeBSD CD, and that's how he got started. So, going from basically art and compiler magic into security and authentication and authorization is a
0: big shift. Oh, uh, certainly, yeah. But you can see that you can apply many of these techniques, like being memory uh, conservant, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. You can apply that not only for demo scene work, but also for security and operating systems. Yes, or, so, yeah, that's...
1: if you're going to build PAM, uh, yeah. So, I mean, Pam uh, alone
0: is. Books have been written about Pam, so. <laughs> uh,
1: many thanks to Dez for all of his work and for being a part of the community.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, so, speaking
1: of being part of the community, this week's yeah. episode of BSD Now is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com/bsdnow and sign up for their guide to buying a new server for open source.
0: Yes, because IX Systems is very engaged in open source, they cover a lot of, uh, or sponsor a lot of uh, FreeBSD developers, or they can sponsor BSD conferences, or go to other conferences to not only present their work, and what they're doing in hardware, but also community-wise and what kind of uh, software development they do for like um, TrueOS and uh, uh, Elon Musk, no, sorry. Brings. Ah, gee, I mixed up the names today. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that's the one. And uh, But they're also a great hardware um, provider if you're looking for a solution for your open source, um, like server, or if you want to run a certain um, server version of a, an open source project and you don't know what kind of hardware this should run on, then go to talk to IC Systems because chances are they've done this already for a customer or they custom built you something that will give you the right amount of performance or the right amount of um, what kind of benchmarking you want to do or mm-hmm. what kind of key you performance know, uh, metrics you're looking for.
1: IX has a reputation for being very, very good at storage, but you know, the, the same attributes apply when buying any kind of server, whether it's you'd need all compute power or memory or whatever. Whichever project you're trying to do, you just describe the projects and what your the problem you're trying to solve, and IX will help you build the hardware that will do the best job of it for the best price. Uh, you know, you'll get uh, an accurate quote for just the parts that you need. Uh, you get the right hardware for your project. Uh, it's very well built stuff. It arrives on time and the white glove tech support you get is all onshore. There's no outsourced tech support.
0: Yeah, so it's all uh, built in one house, basically from the same people who built similar systems, if not the same, and uh, you know they have the expertise and um, know which components fit well together and provide you the right amount of uh, performance or stability. And
1: they've been deeply involved in FreeBSD since before it was called FreeBSD. Uh, and so they know what works with FreeBSD. Uh, but, you know, lots of people buy Linux servers from them. If it's, it's not BSD only, but they are the best shop to go to
0: if you want BSD. Yeah, so definitely check them out. And you can find various solutions from high-end uh, racks up to relatively small rack mount systems, way down to the FreeNAS Mini for your little desktop or office use to backup your files. So that's also expandable because many of these systems use uh, ZFS internally. So that gives you already the power and uh, stability um, that you know from ZFS.
1: Yeah. Um, but this week they announced a new series, the TrueNAS M series.
0: Yeah, they kind so of made is- an... Uh, A secret about it a couple of weeks ago with uh, like a a blacked out screen uh, on various Mm -hmm. uh, social media, but now it's unveiled. So Uh, so this
1: is a high-end ZFS uh, tiered storage system with NVDim and NVME uh, for high-performance caching. Cool. Uh, So this basically introduces the M40 and M50, which sit uh, between their... Uh, all flash arrays of the TrueNAS X series. Uh, and, or sorry, the Z series is the all flash one, and the X series is the hybrid, and the M sits in the middle. Uh, so, to give you kind of an idea of what they what you get here, uh, the TrueNAS M series is basically a custom built for you chassis with two separate computers in it, basically, two head units, so you get high availability. And the chassis holds 24 3.5 inch drives. Uh, and then you can either get the M40 or the M50. Um, The M40 uses NVDIMMs for the write cache and SSDs for the read cache and supports up to two external shelves of 60 hard drives each, allowing you to have up to two petabytes of storage. But the M50 uses NVDIMMs for the write cache, the slog, Uh, And NVMe drives for the read cache, the L2ARC, and supports up to 12 external 60-bay enclosures, allowing you to have up to 10 petabytes of data in a single unit. Plus, because the head is two separate computers, you have your dual controller design, so you get high availability, failover, and non-disruptive upgrades. So that, you know, if you're running your big compute cluster off of this, you can't have downtime. You don't want to have to turn off every single machine in your private cloud just to upgrade the storage server. So you can upgrade one head and then fail back over, run it on it a little bit, make sure everything's good and then upgrade the other one and so on. Um, Plus because it's uh, TrueNAS, you get all the features including uh, sharing via SMB, NFS, AFP, iSCSI, Fibre Channel and S3. So you can uh, share files, blocks, or objects all at high speed with the TrueNAS.
0: Cool. That certainly is something uh, not only companies, but also, uh, you know... I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the necessity to... Necessar- yeah, necess- yeah. To have that is pretty much universal. for. Uh, but the
1: M50 is just so drool-worthy, looking mm-hmm. at it. Um, <laughs> for... 100 gigabit ethernet ports, 3 terabytes of RAM, 32 gigs of NVDIMM, uh for the slog, and 15 terabytes of read cache that's all NVME. And then yeah. up to 10 petabytes of spinning rust for storage. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow, that's just yeah. That's making me lightheaded headed thinking about that. Yeah, it's uh, you're getting ideas how to uh, uh, to you know ah well I could use that uh, well I just need to find a use case for it and it's quite yeah. easy to do that. <laughs> uh,
1: and certified Citrix ready for Xen, VMware ready or uh, in Veeam certified for backups as well. So no matter what kind of private virtualization or whatever you're going to run on it it's the best way to do it and you know you get your high availability options with dual hot swappable controllers giving you your 99.999% uptime
0: hey nice nice that's certainly going to get people's attention
1: yep so that was uh that so our next story is uh, oh yeah some adventures with the FreeBSD scheduler.
0: Yeah, that's um, something that sometimes comes up in university classes where it's like, well, this operating system class is nice, but we want to know more about how the scheduler works. And this one is um, from the FreeBSD mailing lists, and uh, it's basically uh, it's called Creepy Sadistic Scheduler. And it explains how schedulers work, or at least the FreeBSD scheduler, so that gives people an idea what it why it's doing the things it's doing the things it does. And uh, uh, it goes uh, to begin with, uh, occasionally, uh, uh, who posted that? Uh, oh, Peter. uh oh, there's no uh, second name. Okay. So, occasionally, um, I noticed that the system would not quickly process the tasks I need done, but instead prefer other, long-running tasks. I figured it must be related to the scheduler and decided it hates me. Okay. So, that's already a statement a closer yeah. look so, shows that
1: uh, the basically what they did here is they ran a postgres vacuum to create um
0: a hybrid workload where it's
1: like do some disk io and then have to do some compute on it and then do some disk io and then do some computer on it. uh and so they're running the vacuum and they're reading you know 13 megabytes a second off the disk which isn't very much but uh i get the feeling this machine's not very fast we'll get to that in a minute and then in another uh shell they started just a a while loop of just running true um using up a lot of CPU. And they found, while that's happening, uh, that the Postgres vacuum would then slow down to ridiculously slow. Uh, So instead of, they were getting about 1,600 IOPS a second, and now they're getting 9. And when they ran top, they can see that Bash is using almost all the CPU. Hmm. Uh, And it turns out that in the scheduler, the quantum was set to uh, 94,000 ticks. So... The process that any process that was trying to use the CPU would be limited to 94,000 ticks or 94 milliseconds of time on the CPU before having to give up and let somebody else have a turn. The problem is with this particular workload, Postgres would do a bunch of IO and then wait on the compute because Bash had the CPU. Then it would get to do its little bit of compute and then it would go back to doing the IO not have any compute, and Bash would be given the CPU again, and we get 94 milliseconds before Postgres was allowed to touch the CPU again, resulting in Postgres only getting, you know, 10 or 11 IOPS a second. Uh, First thing we learned is that this was done on a Pentium 3 1 gigahertz, so it actually only has one CPU. Uh, Normally this would be less of an issue because, you know, if your laptop even only has two cores, uh, it probably has hyper things, so it probably has four. But even if it only has two, um, it means both of these processes can run without actually interfering with each other. Uh, but in this case, because there's literally one core and zero threads, um, it was allowing Bash to dominate the CPU and not and the specific workload of Postgres or uh, I think in a later part of the thread, they use LZ4, the the archiver, um, to do mostly I.O., but a little bit of compute, and they kept getting blocked on the compute uh, because they'd have to wait until Bash had its turn on the CPU or whatever. So then uh, they changed the quantum uh, setting to the minimum, which was about 8 milliseconds, and then suddenly Postgres was doing 400 IOPS, because it was only having to wait 8 milliseconds between each IO. Mm. Uh, anyway, the thread goes into it in a bit more detail and talks about it, um, and there's also talk about you know, if you are still running a, a Pentium 3 with just one CPU, uh, you probably want to recompile the default kernel without the SMP option, uh, and possibly also sketched, switch to the old for BSD scheduler, not the ULE scheduler. Yeah. Because uh, there's a big difference. Um, they also talked about there's another setting for the scheduler uh, called the preempt threshold, which controls how often you can kick somebody else off the processor. Uh, and they found that by changing
0: that to one uh, from eight
1: down to seven, uh, ah. suddenly. Now Postgres and Bash are sharing pretty equally, because the Postgres has a slightly higher priority on the CPU, so it allows Postgres to kick Bash off the processor whenever it needs the CPU time.
0: Yeah, so this is not a general thing to recommend, but for certain workloads or Similar workloads like this. This could be an improvement. But yeah,
1: this this is less. I'm not covering this so much because people should go and change their scheduler tuning. Yeah, yeah uh, that's it's not, more about uh, the, just the understanding that these knobs are there and that um, how you can actually observe what's happening and understand what's happening. In this case, um, you know, it makes sense that the CPU is being all used by this process. Uh, and this process does some I/O. It goes to sleep while it waits for the I/O. So it gets off the CPU and, and the bash loop got on the CPU and then the IO finally finishes and then Postgres is like, I'd like to turn on the CPU but the scheduler says, well, I'm not going to kick the other person off until they've they've had 94 milliseconds. And once they do, Postgres got on the CPU did its one little bit of work and then says <laughs> okay, now I need this data off the disk and went to sleep while it waited and the other guy got back on the CPU and then you had to wait in your turn again. Now, if this had been even a laptop with two CPUs, it probably would have been less of an issue. Although, you could probably run into the same problem if you had two bashes spinning, one on each CPU, and uh, the Postgres thread again. But
0: Yeah, so the point is that the system is uh, tuned with general settings, or Mm -hmm. provided with settings that fit most workloads, but only change those parameters if you're actually experiencing some kind of bottlenecks don't just randomly change sysctls just to think oh that makes him that, that makes my operating system faster only use that if you're really looking for uh an improvement in a certain area and if it well, works I mean, fine uh, for you then don't. the bigger
1: those. outcome for this thread is if you have only one cpu uh, you might want a kernel without smp and yeah, use the, the four bsd scheduler Uh, which was designed for a time when people only had one CPU.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So scheduler choice is also important, but more and more systems uh, are multiprocessors. I mean, pretty much anything you can buy today is multiprocessor. So um, yeah, good to know about the scheduler and how it works internally and what kind of uh, switches and knobs it has to change them, but don't necessarily change them just because. All right. Um, that was the scheduler, uh, next up we have a story from uh, NetBSD uh, about ARCH64 support being added, and that's of course uh, good news for the BSD system that's been boarded to most uh, architectures out there, uh, from the smallest uh, toaster to the biggest uh, mainframe. And this one adds uh, ARCH64 support, and that includes the Raspberry Pi 3, so we have a boot lock from there. We're not, of course, reading the boot lock here because it's just a uh, kernel talking back to the user and initializing devices and stuff. But for people who are considering to buy a Raspberry Pi 3, if they can get one, and run the NetBaseD on it, they can see what the um, devices look like and what kind of things are being detected already. And you can see, you know... Uh, Booting way up to the login screen and you can see your familiar NetBSD login uh, announcement and that's certainly good to know that you can uh, get it to that state. So they write, now multi-user mode works stably on FTT-based boards like um, Raspberry Pi 3, Sun XI, or the Tegra. But there are still some problems. More time is required for release. Uh, Also, SMP is not yet working, so the Raspberry Pi has not just one CPU, but more than one. So if you want SMP, that needs to be a little bit more work uh, to get there. So at this point, you can only use once, or just one CPU, I guess. And uh, especially the problems around TLS of RTLD and C++ stack unwindings are too difficult uh, for me. That's uh, from Rio here. Uh, uh, He gives up and needs someone's help. So if you're in NetBSD uh, area and want to help, that's certainly appreciated. And you can follow up uh, on the NetBSD uh, mailing list to uh, that thread. And uh, it seems like uh, NetBSD is just adding one more architecture, but opens up a lot more... Uh, devices with that because a lot of uh, different boards use that same architecture.
1: Yep. Well, yeah, this uh, supposed to be part of the promise of ARM64 is a little bit less uniqueness between all the different devices.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So that, you know, an operating system can just say, we support ARM64 and no, that's not going to support necessarily the nick on every Uh, SoC, but hopefully it means that a few more of the SoCs will just boot the OS out of the box, uh, rather than each one requiring a unique bring-up process.
0: Yeah, and then people can, once they get into a login screen, and then they can at least boot the operating system, then they can start working on drivers and uh, applications and things like that.
1: Well, getting into the OS is a bit more complicated because then you're talking about a driver for storage,
0: but yes. Yeah, true. Being able but you to, get to get to multi-user
1: mode or something
0: is, is the yeah. start. Booting is already an accomplishment, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have as first item five reasons to use FreeBSD in 2018. This is a uh, YouTube video.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it's pretty well, short.
1: That- it's uh, worth checking out if you're interested. Nice to see uh, just random videos on YouTube about FreeBSD.
0: Yeah, and it's not just uh, the the reasons. They could pretty much be the same reasons people started to use FreeBSD a couple of years ago. But there are some more uh, reasons for people uh, who start out in 2018 to just experience what FreeBSD has to offer. And mm-hmm. yeah, watch that video and uh, try it out yourself. So
1: next I have a couple of uh, random things I picked up off Twitter. Uh, all of which are pretty interesting. The first one is uh, Johannes Lundberg has a new version of the Intel Ethernet uh, E1000 NIC driver. So this is R-EM0, right? So E-M0 is what the, the first Intel NIC uh, for like a desktop grade E1000 NIC would be called on your desktop. Yeah. Uh, R-EM0 stands for Rust, So they've re-implemented the EM driver in the Rust programming language. Uh, Interesting, uh, running in Beehive, Uh, and they'll talk. uh, Apparently, there'll be another tweet later where they talk about why they ported the EM driver to Rust on FreeBSD. Uh, But I find this a very interesting idea, Hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's. pretty amusing just to see even just a screenshot of a device. You know, is, yeah, That's obviously FreeBSD running with a Rust-based n- network driver.
0: Yeah, uh, there's also a chatter already going on about uh, talking more about this at a conference later on this year, so we'll keep you updated if there's some news in this area. Okay, then next up we have um, something else from Dan Langell. Uh, he's recruiting to make Elasticsearch and FreeBSD better. So people who want to learn more about their log files and how it all works together and, you know, drawing out the information from your logs, of various logs that you have on yeah. your machines. Uh, Dan is looking for a contact from the Elastic project or the Elasticsearch in this case, uh, looking for um, to create a partnership between them and the FreeBSD project to get official support for FreeBSD uh, and he's sure that uh, falls within the FreeBSD foundation purview it sure does and if anyone knows any names, feel free to contact him uh, if you like.
1: Yeah, so if you know someone at uh, Elasticsearch, the company or whatever um, help Dan get in touch with them and uh, get this project
0: started. Mm. Yeah, we'll keep you updated if there's news in this area as well. And And we have another tweet here (laughs) from uh, FreeBSD
1: user Jason Tubner. uh, A screenshot of Windows Server 2019 preview running under Beehive on FreeBSD.
0: Ooh, so the latest Windows Server. server Running on uh,
1: an Atom C2758, no less. which I suspect might actually be a FreeNAS Mini. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, which I guess Windows would never uh, be portable or ported to. So Beehive makes it work. Of course, I don't know how the, about the performance is, uh, but it works. So Well,
1: this is mostly, it's <laughs> amusing to see that Beehive will even, or that, that Windows 2019 will boot in Beehive. Um, it's nice to see that that's already working.
0: Yeah, so Beehive is uh, way up uh, to the latest uh, operating system versions from the Windows cam. So that's good to know in case you need to virtualize this one application that's not available on the Unix systems. So yeah, definitely <laughs> give it a try and uh, see how well it works. Oh, next up, we also have a news item about SSH Mastery Second Edition in hardcover, of course from our beloved author Michael W. Lucas of the. I don't know if I would say beloved. (laughs) Well, as an author, it's. I'm just teasing Lucas. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, he, he, he could punish me at BSD can uh, In various ways If he doesn't like that So, uh, back give to the article here this <laughs> Oh, gee, I didn't give you my ideas Okay, uh, so uh, He writes I've been publishing books for about a quarter century now At long last, one of my books Is out in hardcover With a dust jacket and everything Introducing the newest version of SSH Mastery And here's a picture You can see how it looks like Oh, that's certainly nice Mm -hmm. Uh, So the question is, why produce this book in hardcover? First, because I need to know how to do it. Self-published hardcover books are a different beast uh, than paperbacks. One day I've had a serious need for hardcovers. That's not the time to learn how to create them. I'll need those skills in advance. And second, because I wanted to. Because how cool is this? Hardcovers are not cheap. This book retails for $39.99. But much like paperback print on demand, I expect the price to drop with time. In theory, the hardcover will withstand more abuse than a paperback. I love theories. He writes, "They have spending forty bucks. uh, They make spending forty bucks on a book you can get for ten in e-books sound sensible." So he has ordered a couple of hardbacks as gifts for the fine folks who sponsored this book. Uh, Also, this book uses his own ISBN number, uh, which is the international standard Mm -hmm. book number.
1: Mm -hmm. I think this is uh, the first one of the set that will actually use his own number now, not the one provided by the publisher.
0: Mm. <clears throat> yeah, this is ISBN 22 out of his block of uh, thousands, so you can get the number in the blog post. Uh, you have my permissions to roll your eyes now, because, yeah, Lucas, uh, we didn't expect anything else from him, so uh, he finishes with, as I don't expect anyone to actually purchase the hardcover edition, uh, I let myself have fun with it. The dust jacket is very Birds of a Feather, no, not bad no bad. That's Sorry, Bastard, bastard operator, operator from, from Hell. hell. Or, uh, how could I forget that? Okay, sorry. Uh, that's very busted Operator from Hell-like and contains extra rat. So yeah, if you want to get that for your bookshelf and actually read that book, which is quite good because it contains the latest uh, changes in SSH Mastery about key management and other things. So why not spend a little bit more money and get a nice hardcover book? If all else fails, you can squash bugs with it. That's my saying about it. (laughs) So definitely look at uh, Michael W. Lucas' books and uh, the latest ones, uh, SSH Mastery, for example. Of course, another book that he has written is uh, the third sponsor for our episodes, the feedback and questions section coming up next, Uh, Tarsnap. He has written the book Tarsnap Mastery. Uh, Tarsnap is, uh, in short terms, your cloud backup, but for the truly paranoid.
1: Yes, it's the only secure online cloud backup service because it's the only one where you have the source code and can verify that your blocks are encrypted with your key and signed with your key before they're sent to the cloud. This means that no one in the cloud or any government uh, can read the blocks that you've sent to the cloud. It means that if you want the blocks to no longer be usable from the cloud, you destroy the key. And now those blocks are useless. Whereas if you use some other service that doesn't encrypt your blocks and you ask them nicely to delete your blocks, you can't guarantee that they've deleted all of the copies and replicas of your blocks. Because this is not possible to do. Um, Whereas if they're encrypted with a key and you've destroyed the key, you know for a fact that the blocks in the cloud are not useful anymore.
0: Yeah, it's just garbage for them. if you use
1: any other backup service they don't give you the source code and you can't be sure that they're not encrypting a copy to their key as well or something so that they're able to read
0: your files yeah so it's encryption with the source code being available and providing you also with deduplications for your files in case there is some redundancy there you don't have to spend that many gigabytes that you originally have on yes. your local right. disk because
1: TarSnap snap is pay-as-you-go you get charged for the number of gigabytes you upload and the gigabytes you store. So your data is chopped up into blocks, then deduplicated, uh, and then compressed before it's encrypted and signed and uploaded. The signature part is also important, because while it's important to encrypt your data before you put it in the cloud, it's also important that when you download it, you can be sure it hasn't been modified.
0: Yeah, because that verifies each time. The file is accessed. A
1: malicious attacker could modify your information to make sure that you can't get your files back or something, and a signature allows you to detect that.
0: Yeah. So all these things come together in a nice package called Tarsnap, and it's available for multiple operating systems. And uh, so that gives you a good excuse to actually make that backup you always wanted to make. And in case something goes wrong, you can get your files back as long as you have the key. All right. That's our feedback and questions section for this week, starting uh, with Jason uh, about the ZFS transfer option. So that starts. uh, Hi, guys. Uh, Just thought I'd follow up with uh, this question by listener David. We do exactly what he wants to do, just with a lot of data, with a mix of z-walls and data sets. Uh, we do use ZXFer as maintained and mentioned by Alan, however, we use ZFSnap2, which is the next generation ZFS Snap uh, from packages and ports. Uh, ZFSnap2 takes the heavy lifting out of managing complex snapshot requirements by creating a lightweight script around ZFSnap. ZFS snap 2, yeah. And Z expert we are able to manage high and low change uh, snapshots over our fast replication links and slower uh, wide area network links, no matter what the storage consumers throw at the array. Hope this is useful and keep up the informative show. And see you at some of the conferences next year. Oh yeah, definitely. Thanks mm-hmm. for those uh, uh, updates. Yeah, that's good to know.
1: Yeah, I should have put the episode number
0: of the the question he was referencing so I could
1: remember it. It's a couple of weeks ago, but yeah. Uh, I still would like to look at making a nice script that could do snapshots based on rate of change as well. Mm. It's like, we want a snapshot at least once a day, but also if more than a gigabyte is written, take an extra snapshot so that when I'm doing my incremental replication, I have predictably sized chunks. You know, so oh yeah! Any chunk I'm trying to do is never more than a gigabyte or something. Uh, of course, since you could write a gigabyte in a second, um, no, you don't want it. the script to have to run every second and be like, have you written a gigabyte yet? Have you written a gigabyte yet? So it gets <laughs> kind of complicated.
0: Yeah. But uh, I will definitely take a look at uh, Snap 2 because it's, is that uh, the one just shell-based or is it a different one? I'm not one? sure.
1: Uh, my recommendation, I think, is ZFS Tools. Whichever one by Brian Drewey is the one I want to switch yeah. to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm happy with the old one that I'm currently using. It's mm-hmm. working perfectly. Um, it's rotating and rotating all my snapshots for months and years. Um, it's just a small uh, footprint of Ruby. It's not a big deal on a server, but yeah, when you can get it in shell, then why not use that? Or at least try it out. Okay, so thanks, Jason, for that um, feedback. And next up is Luis with ZFS Pools. Ah, it's ZFS question time. So that one starts with, Love your show. Thank you. I wonder if you could go back to do some simple tutorials like you used to. I would much appreciate tutorials on ZFS, PFSense, hardware, and hard drive burn-in tips. Uh, Now my questions.
1: Uh, First. First one, I don't burn in my hard drives. That's, I guess... Just because I buy them from IX and they've done it again already, I guess. But anyway, go ahead and ask the questions.
0: Yeah. So uh, he writes, I have a free NAS with sixteen uh, Western Digital, yeah Western Digital Red, three terabyte and six terabytes for storage. I run own OwnCloud, NextCloud, Plex, NFS, and SMB services. I have eight more empty bays for two and a half inch drives and a bunch of sixty four and one hundred twenty eight gigabyte SSDs, new and used. Uh, as I'm building a Proxmox server for testing and learning, uh, should I create a new pool in Freenas just for the SSDs or should I merge everything into one pool? If I join everything into one single pool, he writes, uh, how can I make sure the files on my data set for the VMs is only on SSDs and not the rest of digital red?
1: Uh, you can't do that. So you're probably going to want to have the two separate pools, uh, to, a separate pool for the SSDs.
0: Yeah, because ZFS uh, levels all the data over the, over, the, over the drives, or stripes them, to be yeah. more correct.
1: Um, with newer ZFS, it does it based on... It, it gives a little bit of work to each drive, and then whoever finishes first gets the next bit. Um, so it would still get probably the most of the performance, uh, but with the random seeks and so on, that you might want to... Yeah, there's currently not really a policy way to do, you know, this dataset only uses the SSDs and so on. It's not really what ZFS was meant for. So yeah, you probably want to have the separate pools for the SSDs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And the second question goes, uh, in my company, also has a similar to mine since I built both of this. Uh, one is only running SMB service. Uh, one of the Western Digital Reds started sending too much errors. Uh, So he bought another Western Digital Red the same size, burned it in, took 80 hours and more. Wow. And replaced. Now it is resilvering and it says it should take up to six hours. Uh, The question is, uh, what should I do with the old drive? Can I reuse it for a desktop? I think it should work okay, not good enough for a ZFS system, I guess. Uh, What is your opinion on this?
1: Uh, As soon as a disk has become suspect, I don't want to ever see it again. Uh, You know, hear lots of people trying to get a little bit of extra life out of an old hard drive or something Like, i don't want my data to go away so once a hard drive has started throwing errors i'm not going to use it for anything ever again
0: yeah so i can't reach it right now but my zfs book that's signed by alan so he signed in there benedict your files not your files (laughs) your disks are plotting against you and that's what they do and if they throw errors then you throw it out the window, basically. Yes, like in
1: medieval times. Once it's become obvious that this person or disk is plotting against you, you really want to, to you know, behead it and put its head on a pipe so the other <laughs> hard drives can see that if you misbehave, this is what happens. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah.
0: You make you uh, yeah. make the
1: existing you make the rest of the disks watch while you destroy the, the disk that through errors. And then they learn.
0: Yeah. See so what happens
1: when you don't fly straight. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah, don't reuse it uh, because even on a desktop, you have valuable data that could be corrupted. Because the drive could be malfunctioning in various non-interesting ways. And uh, but the manu- but yeah, the manufacturer. If, if it's
1: already started throwing errors, then yeah. hopefully you have a warranty and you get a free replacement. But...
0: Yeah. Okay. So that should uh, be answered. And the third question is: Is there anything like Proxmox for BSD with that awesome web GUI?
1: Um, I've not used anything like that. I've I've wished for something like that. Uh, there is Clonos, C L O N O S, so Clonos without the E, um, and it purports to be a web GUI for Beehive and Zen using the Valley Switch jails. Uh, integrating CBSD and Puppet. uh, And they have some videos and some screenshots that make it look uh, pretty good. Let me just uh, pull it up so I'm actually showing you the screenshots, I guess. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, I I guess many of the people... um, who are using a lot of uh, uh, jails and uh, virtualization on the BSDs are quite happy with the um, command line tools available that lists all these machines and uh, the jails that you have running. I mean, it's not...
1: Yeah, but uh, a nice web GUI is good. You know, I've, I've wanted the sure. uh, the Proxmox but, of BSD to exist for a while. It's just, yeah. I, you know, there's still a lot to be done in that uh, regards.
0: Yeah, it needs some web development skills as well as the integration skills to make it all work back with the actual tools that do the, the, the management. But certainly, if anyone knows about this or that we don't know yet about a management tool, uh, then let, let us know at feedback at bsdnauto.tv and we'll uh, cover it in the next show, maybe in an article or in the feedback and questions section. So that's uh, connecting those shows together. Uh, so we put that in the show notes and I just did that. And uh, yeah, thanks for your questions. Uh, good luck with your ZFS. Uh, it seems like uh, you're doing the, the right thing, uh, especially since you're not only using it uh, for your private data, but also taking it into the business and uh, making sure uh, your files are secured uh, and uh, stored by ZFS. All right, uh, next up is uh, Michael uh, asking about tech conferences. Oh yeah, wow, this is our... Our alley, Alan. Uh, It's a bit longer, but uh, here it goes. Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. As always, thanks for all your efforts to make a great show every week and also to the Jupyter Broadcasting people behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. We can't thank those people enough. That's not the people you see typically on the screen. Yep. Uh, But there are people behind the scenes you don't see, but they do as much work as we do on the show. All right, um, so while the weekly dose of BSD News has been very interesting for years, I currently appreciate a lot uh, that you're keeping us updated on what happens on the Meltdown Spectre front. Uh, that's particularly helpful. Yeah, it's affecting pretty much everyone, so we might as well cover it for <laughs> many people uh, because it's basically the same problems dealing with uh, most uh, different operating systems have to deal with the same problems, so um, it's interesting but it's to It's interesting see.
1: to see how each of them has handled it a bit differently.
0: Yep. So, uh, going on, uh, I'm a little behind on the episodes right now due to moving houses, but here's what I actually wanted to write in. You've been talking about how great conferences are often uh, enough so that I made a decision last year to attend my first one. You've also mentioned more than once that field reports by first-timers can be valuable for other people. Yes, they are. I enjoy hearing those too, so here's just a little bit of that topic from me. So the FFG, uh, which is the, oh, that's the German uh, Unix user group, uh, just saw from the URL, is an annual conference organized by the German Unix user group for over two decades. Uh, It is not the BSD conferences. Well, well, it could be, uh, but covers topics about Unix in general. I thought it would be a good idea to pick a first conference that's not abroad to keep the traveling costs low. Yeah, that's a good idea. So look for conferences that are close to you. And attending one where people speak a native language probably helps too. Yeah, for a start, I mean, you can still uh, move to the next conference after that. To but to break your mm-hmm. break in your conference uh, spirit, that's certainly a good way to do that. Uh, he writes, "I had a great time and got a lot of input on various topics. Not a problem really, but a bit of a pity. I felt a little alone among all those penguins until I met some Solaris folks later who provided uh, to be more interesting dialogue partners." Oh so, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, if you even if it, you're at the conference where people uh, use the same operating system, it can still be a bit lonely because you don't know people yet and are a little bit shy sometimes to approach people. Um, Yeah,
1: I know. Like I say, my first BSD can, I did all wrong. I I think I met three people uh, and I mostly just went to the talks and sat quietly and so on. Uh, (laughs) But that's
0: normal. I mean...
1: Yeah, uh, it's just... Uh, people I'm very just glad figuring out. we have the newbie session uh, on Thursday night at BSDCAN can this year so if you're coming to BSDCAN, can make sure to come to that um, and we help make sure that you meet a couple of people before the conference even starts so that you uh, get integrated into the conference more and you know Ooh. eventually I think it was my second year I so it was my first year going to a developer summit because uh, I think you and drew invited me to the doc summit. Um, and so I was there for what would eventually become the goat boff years later, but before that was just the pre-conference beers at the Royal Oak. Um, so I'm walking up, I'm following some directions and walking up to this restaurant I've never been to before. Um, and then as I'm moving towards the door, a bunch of people on the patio are talking about right endurance and wear leveling on SSDs. I'm like, oh, these are my people. So <laughs> yeah. <I just laughs> I pull up an extra chair
0: and join the conversation. And, and that's how know. it started. Yeah, exactly. But it certainly didn't end there. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, it, it continues even, uh, except for uh, way too little non-Linux talks. I liked my first conference a lot and would also recommend attending one. That's why for this year, I decided to wave the flag of BSD and submit a talk. Oh, wow, even better. Uh, FreeBSD pitfalls for Penguin folks. And it was accepted. If anybody is interested in attending too, the FFG is on March 1st. Ah, oh, that's uh, already uh, happened. And second in Leipzig, and uh, February twenty-eighth for a workshop day. Okay, so um, yeah, we're a bit behind on that, but maybe there are recordings. So um, he writes, "I'd certainly love to meet some more BSD people there." I'm not sure whether that happened, because the announcement now is a little bit too late, but uh, good to know. Oh, that's one something from me here. Uh, by the way, he writes, where were you last year, Benedict? You're traveling around the world for conferences, and I really expected to see you around for UNIX conference that took place at the Technical University Darmstadt. Yeah, sorry. So, Darmstadt has two universities. Uh, the Technical Universities, where I'm not, and the University of Applied Sciences, where I am. Um... But speaking of that, right? There but it's still are, local, right? Yeah, it's it's just other part of town. It's not even ten minutes away. Mm-hmm. So, what is your excuse? Uh, well, I should put that on my radar screen. So mm-hmm. I know a couple of conferences are happening in Darmstadt because they have a, a relatively big conference center there. Actually, big news: there is going to be, or people are planning in my department, two new professors are planning a open source conference in our university in Darmstadt after the week after or one or two weeks after EuroBSDCon. I need to get more details. I'm not involved in the organization um, but it seems to be a good start conferences about uh, open source and new IT. Uh, I don't know much more about that just that there's going to be a thing later this year so that's that could be a, a thing but um going back to the uh, submission here <laughs> to our feedback question uh, that's certainly a good way to yeah start with your first conference see how this goes and uh, from there you can move on to like EuroBSDCon because it's kind of close in europe within europe or bsdcan um definitely look out for us because Alan in this box up here and me in this box down here uh, are the first two people you would definitely recognize going to a BSD conferences because chances are we will be also there. Mm-hmm. And so we know a couple of people already talked to them. Yeah, so if you're definitely interested in uh, always wanting to go to your first BSD or any kind of Unix conferences, definitely go. You will certainly have a good time. And if you just listen for the uh, listen to the talks, it's for talk to people in the hallway or just follow the conference program and that's certainly better than staying at home and watching the video recording but yes
1: uh, definitely talk to other people uh, hallway track and so on and just the hacker lounge is where all the fun is
0: Yeah. okay uh, thanks for that submission here uh, definitely uh, want to learn more about those and if people had similar experiences send them in um, last but not least is Anonymous, uh, but uh, talking about BSD trash on removable drives. So that goes. Uh, so my dash cam stopped working. Turned out it was because of this Ubuntu Linux feature where you delete files from a removable disk like a USB dash cam. It saves them to a .trash hidden folder on the removable disk itself. And it had filled up the camera's 8 gigabyte flash drive with trash. So the camera itself couldn't figure out what was going on and I couldn't even delete the hidden folder. It just sat there, unable to do anything, unable to record, unable to switch into delete mode. Uh, it was creating empty folders like it wanted to record, then putting nothing inside of them. Oh, great. Uh, there are literally, literally hundreds of people who have reported this as a bug to the various Ubuntu and Linux powers that be, but it was never changed. I think it might be considered a GNOME issue or whatever. Uh, I really don't care, though. All I know is my dashcam quit working. So the question is, does BSD do this? Uh, But far more importantly, actually, what is the BSD philosophy on design choice like this? What do the BSD desktop environments do in this situation? Thanks. Right, so the BSD,
1: the operating system, doesn't do this. Um, However, if you install a desktop environment that provides that feature, it might. Um, There aren't really any BSD desktop environments other than Lumina. And from what I understand, Lumina does not do that. Um, but if you install, you know, almost all of the desktop environments you can get on Linux are available on BSD, and there they will be similar. Um, but even if they are, you definitely will be able to find delete that trash thing. Uh, yeah. Also, it's with there for- most of them, if you if you do rm in the shell, it definitely removes it without going through the trash, and I think it's usually. Shift delete will skip the trash when deleting something. I know that works on Windows and most Windows. Other operating
0: systems. Yeah. Because that's what people usually hear from Unix. If you delete something, then it's immediately gone and you can't get it back. That, whereas on Windows, you yeah. it's been put on the, in the trash first and then you but can again, still that's treat there. The
1: desktop environment that decides that. So it yeah. might actually be a gnome issue. It's definitely uh, Now, it could be a Ubuntu issue Into that Ubuntu is a distro, so it combines the desktop manager and all this stuff together and makes an operating system. In FreeBSD, we leave the choice of desktop environment up to you, so you can pick one that does it or pick one that doesn't do it up to you. And um, in particular, I don't think Base GNOME even includes this. It might be an add-on that Ubuntu does to protect its users or whatever. Um, And I imagine there's a setting somewhere, but... Uh, if you use BSD, it is very unlikely that this will happen, uh, and it'd be easy enough to fix if it did.
0: Yeah. Now the question is whether the dashcam will work with uh, BSD, or whether that's uh, compatible. Well, and
1: it, it, From the sounds of it, it shows up as a uh, USB-Mass storage it device. Uh, yeah. So okay, then you then should it be totally able to just works. delete the trash folder, suddenly have space, and his uh, dashcam will work again.
0: Yeah. So if that problem uh, gets you interested in BSDs, then certainly try it out. And uh, if it solves your problem, then you can use the dashcam with BSD, then try that out. All right. So thanks for that question. And again, send us any questions, feedback, show ideas or stories that you found about BSDs, any BSD out there. uh, Send that to feedback at BSDnow.tv. Yes. Yes. Thank you,
1: and uh, we'll see you next week.
0: Yep, with more exciting news in the BSD area.